0: Hello and welcome to Tuesday Thanks, presented by Leeds Hospitality Group. I'm your host, Brian Proctor. Join me as we sit down to chat with yet another industry leader. Our guests come from a wide range of professions across the globe. We'll take the time to learn about their journey, where it started and where they are today. We use this opportunity to allow the guest to thank an individual or individuals that played a key role in their career understand what they learned from the experience and how they have incorporated it into their own development and growth. Gratitude is strongly and consistently associated with greater happiness. Not only can it help your mental well-being, it can also improve your physical health. So join us as we share some great stories, thank a lot of wonderful people, and of course, share some laughs. Let's do this. Hello and welcome to another episode of Tuesday's Thanks. I'm excited to be joined today by Rick Delarada, a world-renowned jazz pianist and singer and the founder of the Jazz for Peace Foundation. Having performed with the likes of Dizzy Gillespie and other jazz superstars around the globe, Rick has been at the forefront of the jazz music scene throughout his career. We have a lot to cover today, so I'm going to jump right in. Rick, thanks so much for being on the show. I really appreciate it.
1: Pleasure, Brian. Pleasure,
0: so this is cool. I'm a big jazz fan. And I'm always fascinated when I talk to people like you who have a musical talent or, you know, a talent in the arts, because I have none. And so you're a young kid growing up in Schenectady, New York, I think. Yep. How does the music come to you? Is it down from your family or were you the only musical one
1: well you know firstly i'd like to say so many people say to me oh blah blah I, you know i don't have any talent i wish i played the piano i wanted to play the blah, blah, blah. hey we need you guys in the audience so thank <laughs> you for you know not being another chief with no indians you know what i mean and you, we appreciate your appreciation for the arts and you know i mean the Listen, audiences are so special for us and their appreciation of the music. So I just want to say thank you for that. But yeah, to start out with Schenectady, basically, yes, I, you know, growing up in a, you know, kind of what, you know, we had a middle class in those days. Like, you know, that was normal middle class. It was the norm. And uh, mother and father both were involved in music in music, you know, not as a profession, but as a love and a passion and all that stuff. My father had played the French horn pretty seriously. He had studied with a a great French hornist named Mason Jones in Philadelphia and used to go from, you know, upstate New York to Philadelphia to take lessons with him on a train, you know, take the train all the way down to Philadelphia. So he took it very seriously. My mother, on the other hand, was quite competent, but she never really spoke about it. She. I don't know how really how she did what she did, but she would accompany my father on Mozart horn concertos on the piano, which was just amazing to me. I mean, you know, so it was it really had a it really had an impact to see the two of them make music like that. But also she was the church organist, which she had eventually passed on to me. So, yeah, there was music coming from both sides.
0: And and how do you, you know, as you're growing up and you're exposed to all different types of instruments all different types of genre. How do you, A, pick piano? How do you, B, pick jazz? Did you go through a rock part of your life or was it always jazz?
1: Well, I've never i've never left the music i loved which was the music on the radio growing up and you know just all of that so that was i was every i was like every normal kid when it came to that end of it you know i, I loved all that stuff and, and did play all that stuff in, in little bands and stuff but the piano really happened to me because i was staying up trying to catch santa claus on christmas eve and my parents weren't wild about the idea so i was trying to keep that clandestine with them so it was a little kind of thing i wanted to catch him i didn't want my parents to catch me catching them that kind of thing. And I did notice, I was able to keep my eyes open long enough to notice that something large was coming through the front door and some kind of a big heavyset guy was in the back of that thing, back of that thing, directing it. So I figured that must be Santa Claus. That's as close as I'm going to get. it. my parents not find out, they're going to be in big trouble. Let me just, you know, you know what I mean? Cut my, you know, cut here and go to sleep, knowing that I had mission accomplished the next morning, I'm like, what the heck did Santa bring in? And this is crazy. I mean, what is this thing? And so I started doing it on my own and that's where I started improvising because I really was happy to just experiment with it on my own, figure out what this thing was that Santa brought into this house all by myself. So I was improvising. So I started out improvising, just playing and listening and playing and listening and trying to figure out the whole piano all by myself at the age of six. So then I. So is up- it,
0: So it, I'm just. Gonna, is that coming from your? You know, you, you they say you you have an ear for music, right? So with no lessons, you just started playing and listening to the radio and then copying it, type of thing. You no, really-
1: not really. I was just playing and listening and playing and listening to try to figure out what the heck this thing was and how it worked and these sounds it made and what what the sounds meant and what relationship the keys had to each other and just whatever I could, all on my own. You know, maybe that had come from an innate, you know, music musicality, you know, from because my grandfather was probably the musician of the whole family because he was a accordion player in Italy and he was kind of a big deal because he brought a accordion and a wine press over on that boat and ended up, you know, really in some wild situations during prohibition where they would pick him up in a Bentley with a giant thing of, you know, whatever that moonshine was in the back. You know, in a trailer, and they he's riding the Bentley, and they go to these big, giant places, open the place up, bring in the booze, my bring in my father with the accordion that he had brought from Italy, and you know, voila, you know. So, so he was really, you know, another person I really admired and looked up to. So, yeah, it, it, so, so I was learning it on my own, the, the music on the radio, you know, I really wasn't at the stage where I could just start playing songs on the radio that were on the radio, but I did start playing the songs that, you know, my junior high school kids were listening to because my homeroom teacher, his sons played guitar and the sons were forming a band and he wanted me to play in the band with his kids that played the school dances. So that's where kind of that started where we were playing the early Elton John and Grand Funk Railroad and Bad Company all you know all those bands from those days.
0: Yeah. Those of us of a certain age remember those bands very well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so so as you progressed through elementary school, high school, did you know hey, I'm going to take this music to the nth degree after finishing high school or because I think you went to the New England conservatory of music correct
1: I certainly did yeah so what happened with that was basically you know I was noticing here I am with this piano I'm learning it my parents have me studying classical music and I can't really I can't really like find a way out of that because I, I saw the depth of this music and these great people Chopin and Bach and I was like wow that's really something there I can't abandon that as difficult as it was and as convenient as it might be to abandon it and i couldn't because i saw all of the just you know how how amazing it was and then i had the pop thing which sounded great to me you know you know play in front of the high school girls or whatever in the band that sounded like a great idea then my mother was like well i need you know she wanted me to take over for the organ in the church so i had to quit my paper out So now you have all that going on. And then on top of all that, I have to stumble into some drawer in the library. I open it up and there's all these jazz records. So, and the jazz was really now resonating to my very initial, my very initial introduction to the piano. Like when I told you I was, you know, just playing on my own and improvising. And so the jazz was really kind of just putting all those panties in a bunch to say, you know what I mean? It was tying it all together. And so now I really had my hands full. So I did end up at the New England Conservatory mainly because I I auditioned there because there was a jazz, you know, kind of a somewhat of an iconic figure for jazz piano that was teaching there. And they even had a jazz department that was, you know, different than a lot of the schools. But when I showed up for the piano performance that I had checked on my thing, uh, so I showed up to that and they said, you know, piano performance to us it was just a bunch of classical people. That only means classical music. So I just played the classical music I knows, and luckily I was able to get accepted. So now I'm in there and they did have the jazz department. Then they had this incredible city of Boston that was very br- vibrant music scene there. So when you add all that up, I really had quite a challenging opportunity in front of me to, you know, play all kinds of gigs, all kinds of music and explore up serious jazz scene and also study at a top classical conservatory. So, yeah, I had my work cut out for me.
0: Yeah, I was going to ask when so when you're going to school and you're in a city like Boston, obviously you just said you you know, you go out and get some gigs, you go out and listen. Your that's a long day.
1: <laughs> oh,
0: yeah. Cuz I imagine you're in class all day and then you hit the clubs at night. For lack of a better term, right? And you're either playing or you're learning and observing. I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it was a crazy situation because I was some of the gigs I was landing because you know my classical ability and my pop ability to play pop music and all that. You know, so I I had those two things, and then of course I had a I had an interest in jazz that was very you know sincere so when you put that all together i kind of had a delivery that was of interest to people who were throwing parties and, and the works and they had a gig office at school so i would get a lot of gigs off the gig office and then sometimes i would show up to auditions i heard of or whatever and i landed a piano thing at the parker house that was pretty stupendous where i was playing there every night and then i was contracting other piano players to play before me and after me and around or whatever and so you know it was it was quite a lot of activity
0: yeah. So, all right. So you've, you've finished school and you've got this, I'm assuming a degree of some sort of, right. f- from the conservatory. What's next for you? What do you do after you break the chains of the school and say, all right, I'm here. What's next? Well,
1: the first thing you do, at least if you're me, is you, you try to delay the chain breaking. So, <laughs> You know, I, what happened with me was I had a kind of a mentor, kind of a guy. He's a great composer. His name was William Thomas McKinley. And he was in the composition department and he said, you know, Hey, what the heck are you going to do? You're going to graduate. I said, yeah, I don't know. I'm just going to be a musician. I don't know what I'm going to do. He said, listen, why don't you stick around? Let me talk to this one and I'll talk to that one on your behalf and we'll get you this little scholarship and that little thing so you can qualify for this. And I actually was able to stay there for free. I think I even got paid a little bit to stay there and do a master's in the jazz composition department. Oh, wow. So that's the first thing that was delayed. While I delayed it, I was able to just continue all I was doing. And then by the time I did get out, you know, I was making a living in Boston as a musician, you know, freelance musician. So you know, whether of any kind of music and any kind of thing, studio music, playing on commercials, touring with little things. And so I was kind of in the, if it ain't broke, don't fix it, you know, scenario that I was kind of in when I first started music, I was like, hmm, this kind of sounds like fun. Unless somebody screws me out of it, I'm going to kind of keep you know, rolling with this because it just seemed better than any other job I knew of, except ski bum sounded good to me, but I later found out that that didn't pay much either.
0: So, and, and it's too cold.
1: <laughs> and it's too cold, but I, I do love to ski and I was able to work some of that back into my life. But uh, so, so you know, I, I was just rolling with that. But then uh, sure, sure enough, I mean, I started to gravitate towards New York. Friends would invite me down to check out the city. And then I run into people on the street that were down here and they would, you know, Hey, you know, we need a, we need somebody to play keyboards and, and who has original compositions, you know, for our, you know, and I was like, well, um, it was weird because I was like, I ran into someone on the street and then who knew me from Boston and he's like, I'm like, I don't, I don't live here. I have, you know, but I have a cheap apartment and well, what if we find you an apartment, you know what I mean? Would you, you know, and I was like, well, if you could find me one, you know, for the price I'm paying you know yeah I mean I guess you know so it was kind of that kind of thing where I was kind of lured into it by other people that you know for whatever reason felt like they needed me down in New York with them
0: so what year would that have been roughly
1: that was eighties. well late 80s was yeah late 80s early 90s so it could have been it could have been 90 91 something like that because i think i graduated in 80 i graduated i think in 86 and 88 something like that with the with the bachelors and the masters and then i was probably in boston a couple more years so it was around 1990 give or take a year on either side
0: okay so now you you're several years from school you're in new york are you becoming a a club musician at that point are you are you touring what's the story in those first you know five years in New York type right of well
1: when I came down to New York you know again my my strategy was to basically you know I can do and I could fit into anything so I'll just you know bring a car in case I need the car and you know I, make sure I can play anywhere and one of the first persons who called me it was a funny story because of actor Alan Arkin passed away. Remember that actor? Yeah. Uh, One of the first persons who called me was Alan Arkin's brother, Bob Arkin. He's a bass player. And that's because word got around that I had a battery-powered keyboard. Because I was just trying to make myself, you know, hey, man, if you have the gig, I have the ability to fit into it. But whether it's the style of music, whether it's, you know, you have to take a car to get there, whether you need a battery powered keyboard, you know, I just figured I'd be equipped to have everything. Well, when he found out I had a battery, you know, he calls me up. He never told me for a long time that he was the guy's brother. But, you know, he's like, hey, man, I have a gig. It's at, I said, where's it? It's at Grand Central Station. Okay, like what? what bar, what, where at Grand Central, it's that it's in the, you know, and I'm like, it's in the sub, you know, it's in Grand Central station. And he had a permit and he just started calling me for gigs. And most of I said, Bob, do you ever play above ground, <laughs> you know? But he did, of course. But, you know, I was just a joke. But, you know, the thing was, most of his gigs were underground because he had a permit or that he was calling me for. But he did call me for stuff in Central Park as well. So I would find myself in Central Park or in the subway during the day and then on somebody else's gig at night. And there were different then, you know, different bands, too, I would play with in the, you know, on the streets. I played with a funk band that had a giant generator. I didn't even need a battery powered Things They had a generator you plug into. And these guys were so loud that basically we'd set up, we'd play until the cops came. And then we would go to another spot and play until the cops came. And they made more money than in the club. So I made more money but then I'd go to a gig at night, but the club would pay me less than they than I made with them getting thrown out of two, jo- two spots. You know, getting thrown out of like Times Square and the South Street Seaport.
0: Oh, that's too funny. I was listening to the guys from Depeche Mode on a show and the question was asked, how did you end up joining? And he had a similar story. He said, I had some kind of synthesizer. I forget the type it was, but he said, I owned it so I could go anywhere with them. Very similar in that, hey, I had the equipment, so of course they hired me. Right.
1: So the, the problem was getting out of it. I mean, I once I got, you know, I for I mean, I wanted to get into it because I needed to, you know, make the bills. I needed to pay the bills. But now it's like, wait a minute, if I don't get out of this, I'm going to be a street musician or I'm going to be, a you know, I, I, this wasn't what I quite what I signed up for. This is part of my journey. So, you know, subliminally weird things happen. Like, you know, I've started leaving my battery powered keyboard, you know. <laughs> in the, in the basement, instead of taking it up five flights, walk up. And one day that disappeared. So, oh guys, I can't, I don't have the battery, you know, sorry. You know, the car, I had a tour with, a, a 1950s band called the platters. You might remember them from the 1950s had a lot of hits and it was on ships and stuff going to, you know, all these, uh, ports of, you know, Mexico and, uh, San San Juan, Puerto Rico, yada, yada. And, uh, I brought the car to a cul-de-sac in New Jersey near where these guys had found me a place that wanted me to play in their band. They found me a place that was, you know, similar in price to where I was in Boston and just kind of took the plates off with a screwdriver and walked away from that. You know what I mean? So now I don't have the cars and now I can't do this, you know? So in other words, you had to kind of, you know, you had to ease out of one thing and ease into another thing in terms of a career. Every progression with your career is kind of risky financially. That's the problem. But if you don't make the move then you're stuck in a you know you're stuck in like a different mind you know one your mind and body are in two separate places
0: yeah so from street performing and stuff were you able to get studio work i mean how does how did because you put your first your first album was in 95 i think right yeah
1: somewhere around there Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah
0: so so early 90s you're playing the streets you're making money you're down in the subway I'm sure I've seen you now that you say that. But so how does that all start coming together to get you to that point where, you know, you can do an album or even studio work for that matter?
1: Right. Well, I was a studio musician. I mean, in other words, that was something I could do. In fact, when I was in Boston, I got called to play on a, on a Labatt's Beer commercial. And I was on the way from Boston to New York and I, I just happened to answer the phone and they were like, we need you to play on this thing. And I went and I played Bats Blue. I played My Blue Heaven. It's an old song called My Blue Heaven for a Bats Blue commercial. And they said, listen, we need you to take this song and do like every style of music because they're going to pick one. We don't know what they're going to pick. They brought the executives in. The very first version I played was like a little gospel-y kind of My Blue Heaven. Perfect. We like that. That's it. I was in and out of there in two seconds. And then I ended up in New York because they had to fly me back from New York because a mistake that in the engineer, there was some sort of a leakage in sound. They had to fly me back on a plane and do the same thing again. And then, you know, and then I went on tour with Artie Shaw Orchestra Mm -hmm. and they used to play in the bus. The the Labatt's beer commercial would play. The bus driver would be listening to the radio and the Labatt's beer commercial would come on with me playing and I would get royalties. So I could do it, but it's just a matter of, you know, where are you going to put all of your what is it your hustle focus? You know what I mean? Because the Mm -hmm. problem is answering the phone is easy. You know, someone calls, I go, no problem. But keeping that phone coming means networking, doing this, you know, showing your face, being here, being there, you know, all that kind of stuff. So I was just kind of like, you know, again, you know, have keyboard, have Transportation, will do anything. But anyway, so what happened to me was because I was doing all kinds of stuff, I ended up on gigs where I was mainly a vocalist, like piano bar. You -hmm. know, they don't want to hear how well you can, you know, play jazz on a piano bar. They want to hear the songs that they want to hear, you know, the songs that you sing. I might even sing a be the beginning of one of those kind of songs when, a little later when I play some for you sure. and, and then into a jazz thing to show you that, how that works. But anyway, so, so I'd be on that thing and that would be like tours for months. You know, I remember they brought me over once to Sweden for four months of piano bars, you know, one month in Norway too, and Japan too, lots of places. And you just, you know, so, so that was about singing, but then I get in New York and I'm backing up a singer. So I'm not singing at all. It's about playing, you know? But then I'd be in some other situation, you know, where it was an all-instrumental group and they wanted to feature instrumental music, so it would be more about my compositions, you know. So now I kind of had to record because if when you came to see me on a gig, you never saw me. You saw a part of me, you know what I mean? You would only see me on the part that I was, you know. So if you came to a piano bar in the West Village, you just saw me. In that context, you know, if I was backing up, you know, a, a saxophone player or a singer, you saw me in that context. If I was in some other thing where there was, you know, an original music project, you saw me in that context. So I had to record my own records in order for you to be able to experience all three things.
0: Got it. And you don't have to answer this question if it's too personal. How does that get financed for somebody like yourself who you were... A working musician which in and of itself i think for the millions of musicians out there is a is a big win but putting an album out that costs a lot of money doesn't it I mean,
1: well there are you know what there everything is a catch-22 in music there are just tons of catch-22s you know what i mean and so the way that you could do it for me first you have to have a label that's willing to uh take a chance on what you do you know what i mean and then For me, I decided that I would purchase recording equipment because around the 90s was when recording equipment became affordable. And Mm -hmm. I put the recording equipment in my um, apartment in the East Village of New York City. So I put the recording equipment in the apartment, and then I called some musicians in the neighborhood to come over and do a sound check. The drummer, who was well-known in the avant-garde jazz world, and he had played with Cecil Taylor and numerous luminaries. He was doing a gig in a movie with Paul, Walter Matthau as a street musician. And he said, listen, Rick, here's the deal. That they, and, and the movie, someone just told me about recently. They told me the name of the movie. And I saw it was a great movie. It's called I'm Not Rappaport. Great movie. I've Walter heard of Matthau filmed in New York City. It is a such a charming movie. I watched it the other night and I saw Dennis Charles, the drummer, in it. But anyway, that was when they were filming it. And he's like, hey, here's the deal. If they call, if it's overcast, they can't film the scene, but I'm on call, so they have to pay me. So if, if there's a problem with the weather, I'll call you because I'll get paid by them to come over and do a sound check with you. So that's what happened. It was overcast. It wasn't the lighting wasn't right or whatever they said. And so he came over and we did what I thought would be a sound check. But a few weeks later, you know, he had owed me 20 bucks because he had a little bit of a habit and I tried to stay ahead of him all the time, always owned me a little bit so he wouldn't borrow more money. And he comes over, he came over, by the time he came over, it was only 10 bucks. He called me and said he had the whole 20, but when he came over, it was only 10, which was fine because I was 10 ahead of him. Now I couldn't, he couldn't start, you know, so it was one of them things. And I said, Dennis, you got to listen to the recording guy. You got to listen to the sound check, you know? Oh, so, okay, okay. So he listens to it and he says, hey, I said, okay, so, so, so what do you think? He says, what do I think what? I said, what do you think? Should we do the recording? He said, that is the recording. Wow. That is, a re- so we never really recorded my first CV. It was a sound check that ended up being a record.
0: Oh, wow. That's too funny.
1: And he said. When people hear it, I'm telling you. When people hear it, blah blah blah. This is gonna happen, and he's telling me stuff. I mean, it's like just unfathomable for me to comprehend. But I'm like, you know what? I'll run with that. It sounds good. I'll just, you know, okay. If that's what I said, Janice, are you sure? He's like, I'm sure, man. I'm positive. And sure enough, that record, I ended up getting gigs around New York City and clubs, you know, like the Blue Note and Birdland and stuff. And then I ended up getting gigs in like Brazil and Hong Kong and, you know, taking him to places he had never been.
0: Yeah. Wow. That's that's quite the interesting way to get the kickstart, huh?
1: It, It was quite an interesting thing. Yeah, it was an interesting phenomenon.
0: And since then, I think you've got, what, five, six, seven albums? Well, there were the
1: seven records, but, you know, who knows how many there would be. The problem with, with records is by around the time of, of shortly after nine eleven. When I had the Jazz for Peace CD, which is the last manufactured CD that, you know, that's under my name. You know, there's the record stores, there were no record stores, you know, the record stores were closing. You can't sell the record. They're streaming. And so, yeah, I don't know how people finance it now, but for me, it's like, you know, it's just doesn't make sense. You know, I don't know. I mean, they are uncharted territory, you know, I mean, yeah. without a record store, how do you sell a record? I don't know. Someone else would have to answer that question.
0: Yeah, hear, there is an answer. Yeah, I miss going into the record store and flipping through the albums. I found so much music in my life by actually the album cover, and and I I mean I found Van Halen that way. I just but, looked at the cover mm-hmm. and I said to my buddy Don, I gotta buy this. This looks kick-ass. I discovered Chuck Mangione the same way. Right, And so, so much of my musical, and and I'm a huge Santana guy, I've been a Santana fan since I was born, but so much of that came from just going to the record store and looking at the album covers and saying, hmm, this looks cool, and try it. And then you open it, and it's, oh, miss that.
1: Well, and now there are people who put out records on both vinyl and CD. And they do it, you know, I'd have to talk to one of them and say, how, how are you fine? How does that work with the financing and all that stuff? And I guess you can sell them. But I just remembered when there were record stores and when people did have that in mindset, you know, you could sell a lot of CDs on your gig, you know. But I mean, right now, I mean, people do. I mean, even me, you know, I don't buy records myself. So how can Hmm. I ask someone else to buy a record if I don't even do it?
0: Yeah, no, exactly. So listen, I want to get into a couple things with you. Obviously, we have to talk about the Jazz for Peace Foundation because I know that's so that's such a passion for you. Mm-hmm. And I want to talk a bit about, you know, you've played with the likes of Dizzy Gillespie. What's that like type of thing? But you mentioned earlier that you might want to play something. So why don't you take a couple of minutes and, and entertain us, young man?
1: Sure. So, you know, what I've been doing is, I mean, for, for me, one amazing thing about Jazz for Peace is the story and people of all net, you know, all shapes and sizes, all kinds of podcasts are fascinated with the story of jazz, Rubies, and they want to you know, have my story and then do their spin. Like you're like we're doing here, you know, make, they're all unique because each podcast has its own unique flavor and all that from the individual podcaster. And uh, so I play something for a couple of minutes on each one. And so what I've been doing is I've been making up something different from, from free jazz it's called Hmm. and I call it free J A because when I was in Haiti, I saw a big sign that said, welcome jazz for peace. Welcome jazz for peace, J A S S. And it turns out jazz is a Creole word. And it's their word and it's really J-A-S-S. So I took the S's off because that nobody knows it's spelled that way. The Z's are misspelled. Now I have free J-A and this story with this Assange situation is important to Jazz for Peace because freedom of speech is very, you know, we don't want to lose any of our rights, freedom of speech. And I'm very concerned about, you know, the integrity of journalists being able to to write what they want. And of course, Jazz for Peace, we don't want, you know, we want anything addressed to, you know, you know, innocent people in wartime and all that. So so now I have free J A and that makes it sense for a free jazz piece. But I lead into it with something that people, because people are going to listen to it that may not be jazz aficionados per se. And so I'm actually going to... start out with a song from my piano bar days this is a little summer song from the bee gees called how deep is your love oh cool and then it's going to go into this other thing and i don't know what that's going to be i have no idea what's going to happen so like i don't know we'll be in the (laughs) unknown after that i know your eyes in the morning sun I feel you touch me in the pouring rain and the moment that you wander far
0: very cool very cool thank you it's you know it's you and i talked earlier and one of my sunday morning routines is from seven o'clock to nine o'clock i read the new york times cover to cover i do the crossword puzzle and i just listen to smooth jazz and or all types of jazz and that sounds like something i would listen to on a sunday morning working on my crossword puzzle so i'll have to play this back so that's awesome thank you so much for that and So does that just come to you? Like, you know, you're doing the BG song and then see, this is what I mean about you guys with the, I don't know if you have the left side or the right side, but you talented guys. To me, that's just incredible that you can just say, oh, I'm going to start banging these keys and beautiful music comes out of it. It's just not fair. Well, you know,
1: it's funny because I've been on a bunch of these like podcasts that are of the extraterrestrial or extrasensory or whatever, you know, they're called like one was called perceptions today, where they were asking me about my subliminal, what am I thinking? What's coming through me? How is it all working? Am I making a connection with a, you know, a higher source and all that stuff. And other ones, another one is called transcendent minds is another amazing podcast. And then there was another woman, she titled hers can jazz save the world, but she's very into the, you know, psychic, you know, tarot reading and all that stuff. So these kinds of people are, you know, fascinating with the process and they want me to talk about it on their podcasts. And, you know, what I really tell them is, I think what you learn to do as a musician, as an improvising musician, hopefully you're learning to not really put it on you. So in other words, you're kind of allowing something to come through you. And whatever it is, it is. So you have to kind of trust it and you have to just let it come through. It's almost like if you talk to Steph Curry, when, you know, he says, oh, you know, what are you doing out there at midcourt? I'm just letting it fly, man. I'm letting it fly. He practices and practices, but now it's time to just let it fly and hope the thing, hope for the best, you know, maybe it goes, yeah. in, maybe it doesn't, but kind of with this, it's like, I never really know what's going to happen and that's okay. Cause as long as it comes through me and I allow it, then it's there's a, there's a, it's a valid conduit, so to speak, you know, and it's some sort of a communication. I mean, I feel like if I did something good and it uh, it helped people, then maybe I'm the flavor of the month for a higher power.
0: Well, I mean, and you can see when you watch talented people play, it's kind of like to use your Steph Curry thing, you know, they get in the zone, right. And they just become, and I always watch, the faces and the eyes of musicians when they're doing something like that. And you can just see, you I don't know if you even look or if you see anything, but it just feels like you're just totally engrossed in what you're doing. And I don't know if you could see five feet in front of your face when you're doing that, or if it's just all coming through and the fingers are just working. It's magic. You know, you really
1: are. I mean, whether your eyes are open or closed, you really are. Like, again, you're you're kind of channeling it. You're kind of a conduit for something to come through you. And every single thing plays a part in it. So it, you know, the, the aura or the vibe of the day, the weather outside, the, you know, the talk we've had, you know, the, the sentimentality between the two of us, the song I played before that leads into it, that, you know, all of these things, the tempo of that everything can play, everything has a chance to play a role, including all of my life experiences, you know? And that's mm-hmm. why people started, after they started hearing about Jazz for Peace and hearing to the places I've been, places where no Caucasian person has ever been, you know, and they started, you know, just asking me to play because they just wanted to see what would come out. It could be something from a, a, a remote part of South India or it could be something from a little village called Chaka in Africa.
0: Okay, one more question, then we'll get to Jazz for Peace Foundation. So what's it like when you're on the stage with somebody of supernatural ability I liken it to me you know I'm a dumb kid from Canada I've had the good fortune to play hockey with some professionals who were very good and I found myself stopping on the ice and just kind of watching them and I wonder like with you guys when you're playing and you're either you know the background music for or supporting a guy like a you know Dizzy Gillespie or something like that do you kind of have that moment where you say, oh my God, I'm mistaken with Dizzy Gillespie? And do you, you can't afford to lose focus, but does that happen? Well, it, it started to happen a lot when I
1: started putting on my records because the very first record, Take It or Leave It, that I told you about was it was just a sound check but the mm-hmm. drummer swore was gonna people when they heard it. I was like, "Who's gonna? How are they know they're gonna hear it? A lot of these records they end up in a basement somewhere. and They'll be who listens to it? You know, you know, you send it to someone and he's got a thousand others to listen to. But nevertheless, the success of that record led me into a situation where I could pretty much have anyone I wanted on my second CD. And I had, you know, like a very big name players, like I told you, the bass player who had played with Bill Evans, you know, and (laughs) the drummer from Miles Davis, you know, and people from, you know, Chick Corea, you know, people from bands of major stars were in my band. And then when I started touring with them, they were in my band. You know, I remember one time getting off a plane in London to play at Ronnie Scott's and everyone went up to my band members like they were the Beatles. You know what I mean? No one, there's nobody to greet me at all. Because I was the least well-known person showing up there. Yeah. So, and so it does get awesome at times. You know, it did get awesome at times because with Jazz Repiece, it was a little different. I was like, you know, I'm going to be there and I don't know what's going to happen. Hopefully we're going to find some people on this island that play jazz and I'm going to rehearse with them. Who the heck knows? You know, I mean, the Haiti thing, I was driving around in a truck and these, you know, they were taking me in and out of uh, like radio stations and point, bringing the owner out and pointing to me, that's him because they didn't even believe I was going to come there. And yeah. it's, okay, I have I see, all right. I saw, I see him. So okay, have him tomorrow. Here's your date for your the interview for the you know concert promote the concert because they wouldn't give him an interview until they saw me. They wouldn't even believe I was coming. So, but that's the opposite of the other thing. You know what I mean? So, uh, so yeah, there were there were plenty of times when I was like, you know, wow. I mean, the first one was when I was you know, doing the MC opening act, a stint with Dizzy Gillespie and we're sharing a dressing room and all that stuff. So that was the first time. But like I said, it happened a lot with my second and third in those CDs where I started touring with really big name sidemen.
0: And okay, I said last question, last question, but one more question. Growing up, who was your musical idol? Who did who did you say, oh, my God, that's that's what I want to do or that's that's who I want to be like? Was there one or several?
1: Yeah, it depends on what age. So maybe the very first one might have been someone like the Beatles because I was with my aunt and my grandmother and we're dancing around in a circle to this music. And I'm like, Jesus, that was the first thing I was like, I wouldn't mind being the guys making that music, bringing all the joy to those people. So that was probably the first one, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And then I got into situation after situation where I was like, wow, you know, these guys are playing amazing music, like, way better, like way beyond what I'm hearing on the radio. I want to be, maybe I could be one of them, you know? So it just kept going and going. But yeah, the list of piano great giants is massive. But then you also have your pop artists that I also admired their music and listened to and all that stuff.
0: Yeah, cool. All right. So let's get to the Jazz for Peace Foundation. What is it for my listener in Topeka, Kansas? What is the Jazz for Peace Foundation? and How do you go about running it? And Sure.
1: Well, so you know, someone made a little short. Someone in one of the podcasts, they made this little short and they sent it to me. They said, "Here's a short. You might want you might enjoy this." And it was only thirty seconds long. And it's what is jazz for peace in thirty seconds? And basically, what it what I'm doing, I learned from the I learned from that better than anything else what I was doing. <laughs> I was like, oh, that that is what I'm doing right there. Hmm. And basically, what I'm doing is I'm taking a world class cultural event using our country's greatest art form, and you know, my attempts to do my very best at that moment. So, you know, a world-class cultural event and I'm combining it with a fundraising model. And the fundraising model is what I call an empowerment tree. And basically I learned it by having to break through catch 22s that I, I told you earlier about. There's It's one catch 22 after another. Mm-hmm. And I was in a situation where on that second CD, I told you where I could have all these big names. And here I was with all these big name players, but Now I wanted to play with them and they wanted to play. They were like, yeah, we'd like to tour with this music if you can figure it out, you know? So I'm like, well, how am I going to do that? Well, guess what you have to do? You have to already do it. You know what I mean? So what I did was I put on a jazz festival in upstate New York where where I was known anyway. So I put the festival on and then I featured my band headlining the festival that I put on. You see what I mean? smart move right and then we had t-shirts and then i went down to a club in the village here and i kind of waited till the guy kind of got out front and i kind of started poking around how does someone get up the- what do have to give a cd I don't know how to do this i said i want this band to play and i turned my shirt around and the guy saw the shirt and he's like okay i'll tell you what we'll take a look at this we'll take a look at we'll, We'll, you know, we're going to look at this one. You know what I mean? Like this isn't going to be a CD that just gets, you know, ends up in a Frisbee game. So to do that though, I had to put my own festival on. You see what I mean? And we headlined at it. So now we're already playing. So now you can't say it's oh, well, there's tons of people who have big stars on their record. That doesn't mean blah, blah. No, no, no. We're a working band. We just headlined this festival. So, but what did that festival need? It needed everything that nonprofits need. It needed everything that even artists need, you know, budding musicians and artists need, and it's just all the same things. And, it, and, and I found that it was modeled after a tree and, and that's, I figured this is probably why a tree is so successful because a tree has all of these things. So what does a tree start out with? A tree start out as a, as a seedling. Well, what is a seedling of funding for jazz piece? It's a comment. So let's say, you know, Brian, you have something you want to launch or you're affiliated with some nonprofit. You just spent this time with me and you've reviewed other stuff. You just send an email over to Jasper, you know, Hey, I just want to say this Jasper piece thing. I've looked at it. It looks, you know, I, I admire what you're doing, whatever it is, it could, anything you can say. And I really think it might be able to make a difference for my thing is the same way you've done for us. Maybe you could do that for whatever. That's, that's a seedling. And now we grow that into funding. You know, we turn it, literally turn it into funds. So it starts out as a seedling. Now, what does it need? It needs roots. Well, the roots are going to be the comments from your other people in the organization. You know what I mean? Let's say it's the Red Cross or it could be, you know, whatever. It could be an unknown organization. You still have to have a three-man board just to be a nonprofit. You know, you have to, if you're doing something good in the city, where, where are you located anyway?
0: I'm in Connecticut.
1: So if you're over there in Connecticut, whatever, Mystic or something, you know, you've got, People in the town know you and they know what your nonprofit and they'd like to see it progress. They'd like to see you clean that river or whatever, whatever it is you're trying to do. They'd like to see that go forward. You know, it's a passion, something you believe in. So now we can put that into, to get help you get the roots, we put that into a little document, one page, explains that, hey, Jazz for Peace is going to, you, you guys know I've been trying to get this thing moving here. Jazz for Peace is going to do it. What do you guys think? It's going to be a great event. We're going to have a blast. It's going to be, you know, we're going to, and, and we're going to get it. We're going to cheat. Here's how we're going to, it's a little one page explaining it. And those people get to comment and their comments become roots. You know, I've known Brian for blah, blah, blah. And I, this is a fantastic initiative and count me in. You know, that could be a comment. That's a root of a tree. So now we've grown the seedling to roots. Now we want to expand the roots because, you know, when you see the roots, you see all these little twigglies or whatever, expand mm-hmm. it. And we expand it simply by looking at the comments and saying, wow, this person, I think he gets it, Brian. And this woman over here, man, who's that? Well, that's my board member. She's got she's onto this. She's onto the potential of what this could do. I don't know if she watched a couple of our videos in addition to your podcast, but she is starting to see the potential here. Why don't we ask some of these people if they wouldn't mind sharing the letter with some of their friends, people that they've wanted to bring into this Cause, but you know, they don't know how to explain it. They're in the middle of a bowling alley, whatever it is, you know, so now they share that now we have the roots, those people become VIP guests of honor. So they literally get paid to attend the event. So now you're getting paid to attend a world-class cultural event to make your community better through an outstanding cause that's right there, you know? So it's already kind of a a win for these people. You know what I mean? Now we have strong roots with the roots. Now you can go for the other things. And that's what I had to do with that festival. I put on, I had to find sponsors, you know, I had to find, so now jazz for peace unites your outstanding cause with all of our, you know, and you've seen there it's mind boggling, the achievements yeah. of this organization are mind boggling. So we have them. And now when we show it to the guy over at the, you know, the bakery down the street or whatever, he's like, Hey, you know bring me into that vip room i'm going to i'm going to have cupcakes for you i'll have this i'll have that i'll bring coffee blah 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 supply you know whatever and put me yeah. on your flyer and all that stuff you know someone else is going to say well we can't really you know we don't have products but we'll give you some money and you'll great make you a gold sponsor whatever so now the tree grows with the branches of sponsors publicity and awareness because you get on the news, you get on, you know, you get some, some organizations benefit from the international publicity that they get, you know, depending on your cause. So you're getting sponsors, you know, branch, sponsor, branch, you know, publicity and awareness, you know, another branch is when we get all that together and then we can go for a national sponsor. Another branch is new and prestigious supporters, you know, another branch is when we Tell you about all the different fundraising techniques that we've learned from other organizations and try to bring those into the fold. Wow. I don't know about that one that you did with that Red Cross event in there, but this one that you did down in Utah, that one we I think we can make that work. Let's try that technique, you know, and now. So these are all little branches that make up an empowerment tree because at the end we want we don't want to enslave you with donated funds that you're going to spend and then need us even more. And be dependent on your funder and all that crazy stuff now you're kind of a captured entity which is mm-hmm. what you see a lot in the nonprofit world in fact it's hypocrisy is you know alive and well i think it's topping because you're seeing now you can't even go any farther with hypocrisy you'd have to invent a new word
0: yeah cool well i think you guys have, like i said i i looked at the site and and you know as you and i've been talking about getting on the show just seeing some of the stuff that you've been able to forward along and, and do is, is kind of, ve- not kind of, it's very impressive. So congratulations on, on the efforts. And I know it's a big passion of yours.
1: Well, you know what makes it so passionate for us is the acts because it's really, it. what kept it going was the actual testimonials from the grant recipients themselves. Yeah, And that's what we have a page is jazzforpeace.wordpress.com forward slash about because we have so much archive stuff, we have to put it on other areas. It's a WordPress site, joshuapease.wordpress.com forward slash about, and that page has, you know, one liners from all, all people that you would know, whether it's a former president or it's a well-known public figure or, and then it goes into the testimonials from organization after organization, after organization, and that's where I was like, you know what, I mean, I can't argue with you because you are the grant recipient. So who am I to argue? You said we helped you. We must have, you know, we must have done something right.
0: Exactly. So, so listen, it's Tuesday and, you know, you've already thanked, you know, you've already mentioned some people like your grandfather, your parents, Mr. McKinley. I'm going to turn the mic over to you. Is there anyone else that you would like to kind of give thanks to before we wrap things up? You know, I'd like
1: to give thanks to all the people who believed in what we did enough to give it a shot and let us help them because one of the reasons I feel wealthy even though I may not be, you know, on paper, I certainly am not going to match Jeff Bezos bank account or anything, but I feel wealthy is because you know, you guys gave us a chance and we came through for you and then I felt like because your passion was something that was helpful to our society and made our world better. Therefore, you know, I kind of made the world better by helping you. So I'd like to thank everyone who just gives Jazz Peace a chance to make, you know, to help those who are helping others and, and, and make, you know, improve our world and make our world a better place.
0: Yeah, no, well, it's a great foundation. It's a great program. And I would encourage folks to kind of look it up and we'll put some links and stuff on the posts. Having said that, I think I could talk to you for another three hours, but I know that you have things to do, places to be. One last question, and then we'll wrap it up. Are you still touring with your trio of Mr. Gomez and Mr. White? Are you guys still out and about that we could maybe... Be told about so I could come see you in New York or something. Right.
1: Well, you know, what happened basically with Jazz for Peace was I started to get it was very rare where I could actually take a trio or a quartet. I did take a band to Rwanda once because, you know, there's no jazz musicians to play with me down there. And they we need it was worked out with the government to open the whole country up for for you know tourism again and all that after the genocide so you know certain situations like that where i'm able to bring a band and i did. I was able to bring a band not that group but i was able to bring you know three other great musicians but you know it's really on special occasion that we will get you know someone will come up because the thing is with when i'm helping an outstanding cause you know i have to kind of Help them confirm their event with funds already raised from them and do things like that. So I can't really put them in a situation where you know they're yeah. taking a big financial risk with, with that kind of a situation. So basically, it's a kind of on a first come situation. You know, if someone if someone specifically wants us, then I'll, I'll try to make that happen.
0: Yeah. Now I was when I knew you and I had arranged dates for the taping of this and everything. I was in the city. We were watching Sean Hayes's new play and we walked and I was walking by Birdland and and I actually stopped my wife and I said oh Let's just check. Maybe on some whim, Rick Del is playing, and we'll just stay in the evening. But you weren't. But right. it just reminded me of that because I knew you had played there. So yeah, and the but, jazz
1: for PCD part of it was recorded live at Birdland with those players that you mentioned.
0: Yeah, no, I remember. I remember reading that, and I said, "Let's see, let's see. Maybe you know, maybe he's here, and we don't know about yeah. it." But anyways, well, listen. Like I said, I could talk for hours. This has been fascinating for me. I'm a huge jazz lover. I love what you're doing with the Jazz for Peace Foundation. So thank you for all those efforts on behalf of all the grants that you guys have been able to disperse. So I'm going to end this like I always do, folks. If it's Tuesday, let's get out there and thank some folks. You're going to feel good doing it, and they're going to appreciate it. So, Rick, thank you so much for joining the show. This was a real special hour with for me.
1: My pleasure, Brian.
0: you enjoyed the show today and thanks so much for tuning in we really appreciate it if you would like to be a guest on the show so that you can thank someone for their role in your career please reach out to me via our Tuesday Thanks website at www.tuesdaysthanks.com remember a sincere thank you goes a long way to making someone feel appreciated and can make their day so until next time be well Be safe, and please don't be afraid to tell someone thanks. Chat soon.